Welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello and welcome to this second podcast with yours in scouting. My name is Alan Collins. I'm the partner who heads up the abuse team at Hugh James. I'm joined by my colleague, Danielle Vincent. And from yours in scouting, we have Lucy Pinstock and um, Shiana Paddlemaster. This is the second part of the podcast that we recorded. And so we're just picking up from where we left off last time. The one thing um, I was just going to pick up on, and I think both of you you have said it, and it's really right, is that vulnerability plays sometimes a big part. And that, you know, especially some a child perhaps that does have one parent or conflict at home, maybe coming to scouts earlier because they're keen to get out of the house and things Mm -hmm. like that. And Mm -hmm. it's picked up on. And I've had cases myself where my client was groomed because wanted just to get out of the house early. So was turning up a little bit earlier helping set up the room so it was all leaving late and then the other point I was going to pick up on especially with with what you've said Lucy in in the press before is that with your case other adults were aware mm-hmm. and I know we are going to talk about mandatory reporting and, and and again I hadn't really thought as much but even in my local area the scouts group are all run by a group of friends who after the scouts finish go to the pub and have yeah. a drink all together mm-hmm. so they are you know a big friendship group it's not individuals coming together to run a session and leave that they they become friends and generally people that work in areas like this they they stay for years so they do end up being friends yeah Yeah. and this is why and I I think I have a slightly different opinion on the mandatory reporting than you guys but this is why we have the ask in the campaign to have a local paid member of safeguarding staff in the local area because because it is a really hard ask on volunteers. If they, and no one wants this situation to happen. But let's just say you are a, I don't know, mother in her 50s who runs a scout group and your four kids are the leaders of each section. And then someone comes to you with a report about your kid or you notice something and you're worried. Like maybe you need to go to the district commissioner, but maybe that district commissioner's known you for years and knows your kids and knows your husband. And even if you want to do the right thing you don't want to get accused of bullying or picking you know falsely accusing someone and I think a big part of what makes that really difficult is there's no one there's no one to go to locally to say I'm worried about this person something is not quite right and I don't know what it is but if you've got Mm -hmm. a local person getting all of those messages if they have got five or six people being like something doesn't feel quite right here then they're going to be near enough to the issue to realise that and act. Whereas the bar to say, yes, mother of this scout leader, you've got, you're going to have to phone national safeguarding and make a report. Like they're not going to do it. I don't think mandatory reporting will fix that. Well, that's, that's my opinion. I think it is good because it will give people that, that further push, but I don't think it's a, it's not a panacea. It's not the answer. No, no. It's certainly not a panacea, but I do think it helps to dilute this intellectual debate that people have 
internally do I report or don't I report it sort of helps takes that decision that mm. debate out of their yeah. minds because if they're told if you've got the concern you must you don't debate it you must and you let the experts deal with it yeah. um, it's, not a, pa- it's not a panacea I, I get that but it helps I think in my opinion and experience it removes that internal debate that someone has in their brain do I report am I over playing my hand or you know or should I let sleeping dogs lie and all that kind of stuff that goes on I think I mean it is interesting isn't it to hear because you know hearing both of you you've you've both got really valid points on this exact thing that I agree with you Alan that if there's mandatory reporting and there's actually you, you know something could be happening to you that there could be a prison sentence something could happen to you as a knock-on effect because you've actively ignored but then I also agree exactly with what, what you've just said is actually if the scout group is run by a family you know that's going to be pretty awkward to sit around the table afterwards when you've just you know accused one of your family or extended friendship group of, of doing something that, that no one in there I don't think it, I don't think, it, I don't think it necessarily goes that far and I'll be interested in thinking what you know because you're Lucy and Sharon now you've got the experience of, of the scouts I think the message is is that these organizations if there was mandatory reporting whether it's the scouts or whoever have to have in built into their structures that mechanism that enables the mum running the local pack this is what you do I think it's a question of professionalization because I think right. that I think that applying mandatory reporting standards to paid safeguarding officers, brilliant idea definitely should do it it's their job but to apply mandatory reporting rules to volunteers who are giving up their own time tricky how do you make someone criminally liable for not saying something Mm -hmm. if they're doing on a voluntary capacity and they've never arguably not been adequately trained because it's not like they're a teacher right like if you compare the amount of training a teacher gets versus a scout leader a teacher will have a huge amount more training but that's and what concerns about what to do as a teacher I don't take my children away that I work yeah. with I work with them nine till three with you know a group of of young people in the room a teaching assistant and and other adults in in the where I work so you're not you're not alone with them and but I do have a significantly higher level of safeguarding training than these people who are potentially bank managers, you know, supermarket workers doing whatever jobs and then taking people's kids away for the weekend. And actually, you know, they do need that level of training. They need the kind of training that teachers have and they need to be willing to do it. If they're not willing to do that level of training, are they the right people to be taking children away? Which then means you hit the problem of scale. And this is where I, yeah, I don't think the Scouts as an institution should fall and die. I really hope it doesn't because I think it does no, do a no, lot of good. Not, yeah. I don't think their economic model is actually viable for them to run at the scale that they do. Because if you turn around to the scouts and said that you needed to put in place safeguarding policies that meant that you were training your volunteers as much as teachers, that you were doing everything possible to make sure those kids are safe, I know what their answer is. I've heard it from them before. They can't afford to. Well, that's we I explained to them. They just said it's not practical. But the thing yeah. is... I, what my suggestion, and I know something we've talked about, Shanna, is kind of en masse safeguarding training, you know, via camps over weekends for leaders mm-hmm. and things like that. So they they could deliver, you know, very quickly 
a lot of safeguarding training mm. to people. So I know I've I've my designated deputy designated safeguarding lead. I did a course over two days that was delivered via Zoom, and that which was fantastic. And you know, it it gave me the confidence to be in that role. If they did something like that, you know, via camps, it would be an opportunity for leaders to get together, see people, you know, do things they enjoy whilst doing something that actually would protect children. And maybe they have to shrink the size of our operation. Maybe the answer is actually maybe maybe they are, yeah. We can't run the number of districts and groups that we are currently, but we can afford to train fifty percent of the leaders we have. So we should be operating at fifty percent of the capacity. But basic safeguarding isn't rocket science. I've had safeguarding training and it's very insightful and you're with others and you know people ask questions you think oh yeah what would you do you know and all that kind of stuff and you learn off other people in your you know who you're having training with and i can't believe that regular safeguarding training is it economically crippling well also such such training wouldn't wouldn't necessarily need to be updated I mean there's certain areas where you constantly have to update the training because it, it you know it's no longer viable but if you gave safeguarding training this year realistically in three years time the main principles are going to be exactly the same it's not though you're expecting someone to rewrite it every every month to keep it up to date it is a level of thoroughness though right the scouts already have online safeguarding training that everyone has to redo every few years the issue is it's like click through online training that if you if you're paying attention great you'll learn loads if you're just trying to click through it and you actually don't give a shit then you don't learn anything from it me and lucy talk about this quite a lot but it's like in-person training or training with some level of interaction with a trainer is really important and that's where the cost yeah Yeah, but, but again, I don't if they believe... did that, you know, on mass. Sorry, I'm just yeah. keeping no, no, track. If they, no, if they, no. they I think do, we're on they... the. I think me and Lucy are on the same page yeah. on this. <laughs> they it should be possible. It, you know, it they've should got be possible. campsites that they own. They have got the facilities to run massive <laughs> training events. It could be a huge advertising point for them. Look at what we're doing. You know, we've got the best safeguarding training in the world. You know, and they could use facilities they already own. You know, and make it into a positive experience for leaders. It doesn't have to be, you know, we're going to sit you at a desk for two days. It can be a really, you know, a great experience for leaders as well as safeguarding training and, and really empowering be, as well. Yeah, imp- empowering. And also, to be blunt, it's surely cheaper than having to pay out yeah, millions, absolutely. apparently, oh, in Alan, compensation. They have, they have insurance for that. And also, yeah, if I can even say problem. this, so we might, we might need to edit this out, but, like, I know definitely factually correct that like every time someone sues the scouts it gets paid by the scouts but out of their insurance and they're with multiple different insurance firms and their insurance premiums have been going up and up every year Mm. because obviously they are because they keep getting sued and they pass on those costs to the groups because when you pay your yearly capitation fee as a group scout leader for the number of kids you have the cost of that has been going up above the rate of inflation because I know a GSL and I've seen their finances for the last 20 years of their group. And the scouts have said, told their leaders when asked why this number keeps going up, they've said it's because abuse claims that the scouts are liable for will bankrupt us. We'll go the same way as the Boy Scouts of America. Well, then yes. it's a no brainer, isn't it? You know, it must be prevention is better than cure, if that's well, the right and expression. Short, <laughs> the people's lives that they're right. not taken away from by getting it right mm-hmm. as well, because you, know, you can pay people money, but that that doesn't make it OK. You know, I got yeah. I got a settlement. We settled out of court with the Scouts 
but actually that doesn't mean that you know I went to university at 18 like I could have done or you know I was a teacher do you know what I mean I it doesn't mean that I don't have the ramifications of being abused as a child still so ultimately they could save you know they could have they could save these millions of pounds that they're paying out but ultimately they could save your childhood is it save more importantly yeah exactly it's not you know it can't all be financial it's not just numbers it's got to be you know and even if it is just numbers my Caldicott scale of loss or something like that yeah called a bank you know and obviously I'm I don't know how precise exactly but I was like a million pounds out over my lifetime because of what had happened to me you know it's so there's huge numbers like to being taken away from the economy because people aren't being as as productive to society as they can because of what's happening to them. The scouts are having to pay out huge sums of money to people and people are losing their, you know, losing their childhood and losing, you know, losing part of their adulthood. Because I know I don't have, you know, I'm not able to function as in the way I potentially would be able to had this never have happened. Before I forget, what's your message to people out there then who were in the scouts or cubs or... Guide. guides or brownies sea scouts whatever and they've had their childhoods and lives messed up because of something ghastly happening to them when they were in the cubs or sea scouts or brownies or whatever you're not on your own mm-hmm. it's yeah. not your no, matter, no matter who tells you that it's just you it's not there will be there's so many people that it's happened to and if the way this is a very individual choice if the way that you feel like you will move forward and get recompense from this is to sue the scouts or whoever it is go for it quite frankly they deserve it they know they have a historical problem and they have insurance to cover it so you're not even going to be taking it from their own pocket straight away but i would say that i haven't sued the scouts because i don't want their money that's just a personal choice like i don't want to know that something i have is because of them Mm. in any way which is why i set up the campaign because you can still have power with your story so actually sharing what happened to you, share it with us. If you're part of another youth group, if you're in the guides, let us know. Because if enough people are coming to us and saying, we think what you're doing is really great about the scouts. And actually, we think there's a really big issue in the guides as well. We could start you know, collecting yeah, testimony on the guides expand. as well. Right. So come and and it's us. important to say that if anyone's listening to that and w- wants to reach out and publish their stories, you publish the stories anonymously as well, don't you? So... Mm-hmm somebody's name doesn't have to be attached to it I think that's important for our listeners to hear and the other thing that I just don't want to make sure we don't miss out so you've got three very specific goals and I know that we've talked about them but just so that our listeners are aware it's to be heard to take action and that is going to be your aim is to hopefully a paid safeguard lead position in each scout county in the United Kingdom and to create accountability and the last sort of question I had for you is that in the next five years, where would you like to see the Scouts Association being, you know, with, with your website and all the support that you're giving to people? What changes would you like to see if we haven't already covered them? Offering significantly more thorough safeguarding training, mm-hmm. having that person responsible in each county who is paid and whose job it is to report things and to be listening to survivors of, of abuse in the Scouts, to be you know, we are their their greatest resource for dealing with this. And 
ultimately at the moment we're not feeling listened to you know we know where it goes wrong and we know you know we know what could have made things better but ultimately they we don't feel like they want to hear it we we're screaming at them and they're just saying it's an isolated case it's historical yeah cultural shift like I think it's it's an attitude problem as much as a policies Mm -hmm. and procedures problem it is in five years time I'd like to see them have a, I run this for the, NS, for the NSPCC, like they have a young people's board for change of actual young people with experience to not about abuse, but to like actually see what's happening to young people now. The Scouts should have a, you know, board's part of their safeguarding committee of people who have been abused in the Scouts because, you know, we can actually tell them how to fix it, as Lucy says. But it's also about transparency. It's about when, oh, I know this, this happened last week, when a Scout leader gets suspended because he thinks paedophilia is fine and was telling all his mates at work that the line that is being given out when people ask where this particular leader has gone is this person is no longer a member of the scout association brackets don't ask us any questions as to why but that doesn't mean that they're checking on the kids at his group that doesn't mean that he hasn't actually harmed anyone and because they have this culture of like don't talk about it even if we've dealt with it, we're going to sweep it under the carpet because we just don't want people talking about this stuff, then it's going to keep happening. Yeah, agree. The other important thing just to say for any of our listeners is if you go onto yours as scouting there, you've actually got a page, haven't you, which is headed Get Support with lots and lots of different organisations, including one dedicated to women and men as well. So that's fantastic. In addition so, to that, we're, we're currently organising and we'll be publishing the date later on. We're organising a trauma advice session for people who have been abused in the children's organisation. So hopefully that will be focused on offering practical support yeah. to people because we can't you know we can't offer everyone counseling we'd love to be able to and we'd love to be able to help people more practically but that's something we can do and Mm -hmm. we can offer people that that opportunity to have that one-off session to help them you know deal with some some of the ramifications of abuse yeah let's get back to mandate reporting and the pros and cons and we i think you know i accept it's not a panacea but i remain of the view that it helps to change um attitudes and culture and and so on and helps to negate the debates that people have internally about whether or not to report but i'm wondering whether you feel there's a need for there to be some kind of official setup that enables a victim or survivor to report anonymously because we know that victims and survivors are scared for understandable reasons from reporting because they they don't know what's going to happen next you know so i think a survivor would say it's all very well picking up the phone or walking into a police station and saying whatever you know the policeman or whoever's going to say well who are you can i have your name and address and all that type of thing and so understandably there's a sort of nervous tension there and there's that fear well what am i getting myself involved in And so there's this idea that people should be able to report anonymously and Mm. only then having reported if the police or whoever feel that there's some substance there and there's material there that they need to work on, that the police then contact somehow or other the anonymous survivor and say, ideally, we'd like to talk to you because we think there's something here, if you see what I mean. What are your thoughts on that? I think it could be really powerful and build up a better picture so if there's lots of stories like you're saying that don't meet that threshold of the police saying actually we need we mm-hmm. can contact this person and take this further 
they can build a picture and use it to build a bigger case if there is significant issues ongoing issues with one person i think it's definitely a good idea like from a really personal perspective i i did i basically managed to do this because i my abuser was still a scout leader and i was terrified that he was doing it to more kids but i was friends with his family and his own kids so i didn't want him to get arrested i didn't want to go to the police so i told my best friend's parents who also happened to be scout leaders so they reported it to the scouts but they didn't say who i was and then the scouts came back and said this is way too serious for us to deal with internally the police are going to need to look at it would this person come forward and i still didn't want to i did it because i didn't have another option Mm -hmm. um it has huge personal cost like there are people in my local area who genuinely hate me like properly hate me and there is nothing I can do about that and I can't take it back but I can completely understand why people don't come forward yeah like it's terrifying having the police come knock on your door yeah and this happened you know the first ever abuse case I ever dealt with was someone who came up to me actually at, um, at Crown Court I was working on another case and this individual came up to me and literally said what do I do now and I thought oh who are you this is a client I've forgotten about or something or other you know panic internal panic moment but no he'd been a witness in another case in another courtroom he was the victim of you know sexual abuse and he was someone who'd been um, sexually abused as a youngster tucked it all away inside Pandora's box and one night there was a, a knock on the door from the police and Pandora's box was opened and as a result of that he lost everything you know he lost yeah. his family he lost his job and what he was literally saying to me is what do I do now which was him saying to me how do I rebuild pick up the pieces rebuild my life that's what he was asking me and that's as a result of that it's sort of somewhat bizarre, but meeting by chance in a, in a court building, um, I got involved in this this work. But yeah, that was a classic example of someone literally having to rebuild their life from the very you know foundations. And that's why it's important that victims and survivors make informed choices about what they want to do. It's not for other people to tell them what to do, whether it's the police lawyers or victim support or whoever it happens to be it's i think it's all about that holistic approach enabling if i may say so survivors to make their choices for themselves on the basis of informed useful information the best workaround we give at the moment is directing people to crime stoppers because you're not meant to call crime stoppers about stuff about yourself but they've got no way of knowing that's the interim stopgap that I have given to people when they ask me, like, look, I want to report this to the police, but I can't. They, they're like, I will not identify myself. I can't. So there is potentially this need then, therefore, for a way of survivors mm-hmm. being able to report officially, but anonymously. but anonymously. Well, we've seen this in other groups, haven't we, Alan? You know, we, we, we did a lot of football abuse cases with a very famous coach and, you know, lots of whispers, lots of whispers, parents having concerns, you know, goes on to abuse so many people and we still wouldn't know we'd probably again only have the tip of the iceberg but I mean you know in the area it was known you you know people just had all these whispers about this individual and actually for for the police if actually they've had multiple calls about the same person named in the same area it's almost a bit of a joining the dots and especially actually if one person is saying something and the police think oh we're not going to get a conviction because it's perhaps too level to meet the threshold of the cps but actually then you've got 10 children saying the same thing surely that's a 
flashing red beaker that you know something's going on here that really needs to be stopped immediately so interesting thank you so much both for your time and as I say listeners if um, you want to get in touch it's yours in scouting the website but I will pop on our blog all the details of how to get in touch thank you Shiana thank you Lucy thank you Danielle and it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from them And as always, if you have any thoughts or comments on this podcast, please do get in touch. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.